eat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this story Jesus tells. And Lord, we are thankful that you are a neighbor to us. We ask that you would be forming our hearts even now. That we might pour out love not only to you, but to those around us. Speak to us through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this very familiar story and kind of start to take it apart, and we're going to do so actually in layers. You know, if you were to cut an onion, you see that there are layers in the onion. We're going to kind of be peeling away the layers of the onion today. Hopefully, I'm not going to make you cry. Uh, or like a wedding cake, where you see the layer of cake and the layer of frosting and the layer of raspberry jam or whatever, and then there's more, right? Where there's a lot of things going on, even in that one cake. You know, our town is unique in the fact that we have uh, a, a roundabout right in the middle of our downtown. Most towns don't have that. I don't know if you remember the old movie European Vacation where, uh, you know, the Griswolds go to England and they've never been in a roundabout before and they just get stuck in this everlasting loop. Uh, look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament, over and over and over because they can't get out of the roundabout. Well, in a lot of ways, uh, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take multiple passes at this passage. We're going to look at this story over and over and over, actually four times, because I think that we're going to get a better sense of really what Jesus is trying to do each pass we take. And this is the way we'll look at it. We'll first of all look at the people of this parable, and then the point of the parable, and then uh, you know, what the parable is supposed to do to us, the practice that this story is supposed to uh, instill in us, and then the perspective that it's supposed to give us. So the people, the point, the practice, the perspective. I worked for a long time getting those to all start with the same letter, so I hope you're very impressed. Uh, first of all, the people of this story. Jesus opens up and he tells us that he's teaching and a lawyer comes up to him to ask him some questions. Now, he's, this isn't the kind of lawyer that we actually usually think of. This is a guy who is uh, skilled in God's law. It's a word that's oftentimes translated scribe elsewhere in the Bible. This is somebody who knows the law of God kind of backwards and forwards, and he wants to ask Jesus a question. In fact, the question that he wants to ask Jesus is really the most important question that you could ever ask. It's the question of eternal life. And this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. But there's something wrong with it. You can actually start to see the motives behind this question by the things that happen around it. First of all, Luke tells us that he has come to test Jesus. 
That should always give us a little clue that there's something nefarious going on. Secondly, a little bit later on, we see that he's trying to justify himself in the questions that he asks. But third, even what is uh, the wording, even in that question, there's something broken about it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about two different worldviews. There's the worldview of human accomplishment that says, I am who I am because of what I've done. My identity is formed by my activity. And then there's the biblical worldview, which is the worldview of divine achievement. I am who I am because of what has been done for me, what Jesus has done. It is my identity based on the activity of another. But Jesus plays along and he says, okay, great. Tell me, what do you think you need to do? And the man actually answers really well. He says, here's how I would summarize the law. Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's pulling from Deuteronomy 6 there. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He's pulling from Leviticus 19. And Jesus says, you know what? You got it. Bingo. That's really the heart of it. That's the heart of what all of the law is says is love God and love your neighbor. But then this man wants to take it a step further and he says, okay, great, I get that. But let's talk about who my neighbor is. Who's my neighbor? Let's shrink the field a little bit so that I make sure that I've got the boxes here that I can check. And let's also, of course, make sure that I'm not loving somebody else that I don't need to love, right? Tell me who I need to love. Show me the minimum requirements so that I can achieve the minimum requirements and everything will be good. To which Jesus responds with a story. And he says, imagine a man, and he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, we don't get this like the original audience would, but that's actually a clue that something bad is about to happen. It's kind of like Jesus starting with, it was a dark and stormy night, right? Or a guy in his car was pulling around dead man's curve. We know something bad is about to happen because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous road. It was about 17 miles so typically would have been on foot or on the back of some sort of animal. And it's about a 2,000-foot elevation change. And so it's through the mountains, and it kind of winds, and there's these rocky roads, and it's hard even to find your footing sometimes. But more than that, there's caves all around, and they're great places for bandits to hide out. And that's actually what happens to this man as he's traveling, is that he gets attacked by terrorists. And they rob him. And they take all of his things and his money and his food and his clothing, and then they beat him. They beat him so badly that he's laying on the ground and he can't move. We read here in English that he is half dead. That word in Greek really just means about what it sounds like in English, that he's actually dying. He is laying on the ground and he can't do anything. He will bleed to death if he's left alone. But there's a hint that maybe he'll be rescued as coming down the road is a priest. A priest, you know, was God's man chosen to work in God's place, his temple, and he was really seen as the height of piety. This would have been somebody who would have been recognized as being very godly. But the priest, of course, if you're listening to this story, you're thinking, this is going to be a short story, right? Because you got a priest coming by. Who else could you ask for but a priest? But that's not what happens, is it? The priest instead moves over to the other side of the road and passes this man right by. Second, a Levite comes by. 
And if the priest is kind of like maybe the way that we would recognize a pastor these days, a priest is more like the worship leader. This also would have been a religious worker. He would have worked in the temple. They would have been part of the worship of the temple. And so we've seen the pastor go by, and now the worship leader comes by, and we think, well, at least maybe this guy will stop, but he does the same thing. Moves over to the other side of the road and passes right by this man. The third person in our story is a Samaritan. Now, just really quick history, Samaria is actually in the middle of Israel. And so you've got northern Israel, Galilee, where Jesus grew up, and southern Israel, Judah, where Jerusalem is, the capital, and where the temple is. And in between them is Samaria. And the Samaritans, the folks who lived there, were actually kind of this uh, mixed race and mixed religion. They had taken some of the traditional heritage of Israel, but it also was mixed with a lot of kind of the, the religion of their neighbors. They had their own temple and their own place of worship. And if you were a Jew at the time, the person last on the list of the people you think might come to your aid would have been a Samaritan. It was not clean to eat with a Samaritan. Eating with a Samaritan was like eating pork. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They really did. You know, I remember when I was a kid, they used to play this football game between the University of Texas and Texas A&M. And then the people in charge decided they didn't want fun anymore and they canceled the game. But used to, that was a great game. And as a kid, I remember going to that game and just seeing the pageantry of college football and how fabulous it was with all the bands. And it was so exciting. And I remember this, this one game. And they had the, the Aggie band was marching in kind of to the stadium. And they had, you know, their, their, their big pomp and circumstance. And the core was following them and these shiny buttons on the jackets. And my dad just kind of pulled me aside and he said, he said, son, look, see these men with the short haircuts and the, the, the beautifully pressed jackets and the shiny buttons and those tall, shiny leather boots. You see these men? If I ever see you dressed like that, I will disown you. There's a sense of enmity, right, that's playful in a football game, but really with Samaritans and Jews, it was not very playful at all. But here we have something amazing happen. This person who is the other in society draws near to this wounded man. He sees him on the side of the road, and that sight actually leads him to do something. We're told that he has compassion on him. And he draws near to him and he starts to care for his wounds and bind his wounds up. And then he takes him and he puts him on his own animal, Luke tells us, which means that this man would have had to walk the rest of the way. And he takes him to an inn where he can be cared for and he pays for him and he tells the man, if there's any other cost involved, I'll pay for it. He stops what he's doing. He probably ignores the place that he has to go to pour out of himself to meet the needs of this man who is hurt. So there's our characters in the story. The lawyer, the man on the road, the robbers, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Now I say that because it's really important when we read stories in the Bible, and particularly when Jesus tells us parables, to ask the question, where am I supposed to be in this story? Where am I supposed to place myself in this story? Now most of us would probably think, well, we're supposed to place ourselves in the position of the Good Samaritan. That's what we're supposed to do is help others in need. That's true, and we're going to get there. But we need to get somewhere else first, which takes us to our second pass around this parable. 
what is the point that Jesus is really trying to make as he talks to this lawyer? Well, here it is. If you want to write it down, you can. Is that we are the man on the road. If you don't get anything else today, I want you to get this. You and I are that man on the road who is broken, who is unable to move, who is helpless, and who needs rescue. See, the question that that guy asked first, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, through this story, is turning it completely on its head. Because what he's telling this man is, your salvation, your union with your God is not about what you do. It's about what is done for you. Because you are the one who needs help. You are the one who is laid bare, bleeding, and dying, and who needs to be rescued. The Bible proclaims this loudly. You may have seen this a few weeks ago when we took in members. One of our membership questions is, do you believe yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God without hope, except in his sovereign mercy? We could paraphrase that by just saying, do you believe yourself to be half dead on the side of the road without any hope of rescue until Jesus comes to find you? Paul says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses, that we need to be revived, actually resurrected to new life, spiritually speaking, by Jesus. John says that if we say that we have no sin, that we're actually lying to ourselves, that we're deceiving ourselves. The truth of the Bible is that you and I, and pastors and worship leaders and Levites and priests and all human beings, are that person lying on the road in need of help. If we zoom into this passage, we should see our own face in this man. But here's the beautiful the beautiful second part of that, right? Is that Jesus is the good Samaritan. Is that as we zoom into this and we see our face on the road, looking up, asking for help, we actually see the face of Jesus who looks on us with compassion just like he did a few weeks ago when we saw him raise that widow's son in name, just like that he will do on the crowds when he feeds the 5,000. He looks on them and he has compassion. And that compassion leads him to action. He draws near to this man. He binds his wounds. That is what happens when we give our hearts to Christ. He actually comes near to us to bind up our wounds, to heal our brokenness, to take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. If you've ever wondered, what is Christianity all about? That's it. That's the heart of it. Jesus has come to heal those who could not heal themselves. And he has done so at the cost of everything. He has given of himself. He has left his throne in heaven. He has left his immense wealth and he has come to us to spend it all on us who don't deserve it. And he has put us on himself so that we might be healed. Later in the gospel, we'll see as we move toward Good Friday that Jesus himself has even placed himself on the ground, bleeding, dying on our behalf. Friends, that is the beauty of the gospel. It is the wonder that we find in this passage is that Jesus is the good Samaritan and we are the man who needs healing. And let me just say that if you don't get that, you'll never get the point we're moving to next. 
If you don't understand yourself to need rescue and healing, you will never actually be able to love your neighbor. That's where we go next. The next kind of turn we take here is the practice that we are to be formed in from this parable. What is the practice of Christians? You know, interesting, Jesus, that first question that the lawyer asked, what do I need to be saved? He turns that completely on his head, doesn't he? But he does it actually to his second question too. Remember that second question, who's my neighbor? Okay, Jesus, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who's my neighbor? Interesting, at the very end of this whole passage, Jesus says, okay, who do you think was a neighbor? You hear the subtle difference? Jesus is actually telling this man, your desire is to define who your neighbor is so that you can limit what you have to do. My desire is actually to expand your heart and what it means to be a neighbor so that you can pour out love to others. Jesus is saying the question really isn't who my neighbor is, but what does it mean to be a neighbor? This is something that Christians struggle with, I think, a lot, if, at least if you're anything like me, if you do. Uh, you know, Karl Marx was, saw himself as the friend of the worker, the champion of the working class, but history actually shows us that he never actually had a friend who was in the working class, that he never even visited a factory. He actually liked the idea of loving the worker more than he actually liked the worker. Christians can do the same thing, can't we? We like the idea of loving others sometimes more than we actually love others. I know that's true of my heart. So what does it mean for us to pour ourselves out in love for our neighbor? Well, we could talk about, you know, what it means to love the other, the person who's more like a Samaritan, what it means to pour ourselves out in love for the people that are different than us. But I actually want us to start even a little smaller today. And I want us to talk about what does it mean to love our actual physical neighbors, the people that live around us, the people that whose, in whose lives we intersect all the time. I want to give you three really quick kind of steps, just recommendations for what it means to love your neighbors better. Now, if you live kind of out in the country, this is going to be a little bit harder for you, but, uh, but I think with the help of, of Google Maps, you can get somewhere. If you live in a neighborhood, this is going to hit you right on the head. It's really simple, but I think you're going to see that even the simple things oftentimes get left undone. Here's the first thing. Know your neighbor's names. That seems like it should be a no-brainer, doesn't it? It's not for me. I heard somebody uh, give this really fabulous exercise. He said, uh, okay, think about your neighborhood like a tic-tac-toe board. And then put your house in the middle of the tic-tac-toe board. And then fill in that board with all of your neighbors, right? So the people on either side of you on your street, you know, are those little boxes on either side. And then the three houses on the street, you know, across the street. And then the three houses behind you. So eight total houses of people to know their names. I did that exercise and I came up with four. Four people whose names I knew. We've lived in our house almost three years now. That was really convicting. That's a really good first step. Just learn their names and then pray for them and pray that the Lord would open up opportunities for you to have conversations with them. Which leads to the second thing, which is be outside as much as you can. We live in a place where the, the, the weather is usually really great, honestly. The weather is usually really good and we can be outside a lot. So be outside as much as you can. Take walks and hope to run into your neighbors while you're on a walk. And make sure you stop and talk to them when you do. 
or spend your time playing and hanging out in the front yard as much as you can rather than the back. Now, sometimes, of course, you're going to be in the back. We've got a basketball goal in our backyard, so when we want to play basketball, we've got to be in the backyard. But when possible, if you can throw the football in the front, throw it in the front. If you can grab a couple of chairs and bring them out there with some drinks and hang out in your front yard, that's a great way to see people as they come by and be able to say hello to them. And then third and finally, invite people into your home. Invite them to come in and share their life with yours. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be a dinner party. You don't need to get the china out. You can just ask somebody to come in for a cup of coffee or a drink or dessert or whatever it is just so that you can actually open your home to them and share your life with them. It's okay if it's a little messy, both physically and emotionally. It's okay if your life is a little messy. It is good to invite other people into your mess. See, this is the beautiful paradigm that's laid out for us by Jesus here is that once we start to see our face on the face of that man on the road and we see the face of Jesus in the Good Samaritan, well, then we actually want to be more like him. And so we start acting more like him. One of the values that we have, our core values in this church, is we just say, we move toward people. We want to be a church full of folks who move toward others. Even if that means that we're moving away from their worldview at the same time, we want to move toward people because Jesus has moved toward us. And so out of that abundance, we pour ourselves out for others. Loving your neighbor. All right, here's our fourth and final kind of pass at that. We're, we're, still, we're still in the roundabout here. We'll take another lap. The fourth thing is that this parable really uh, produces for us a perspective. What do I mean by that? Here's this, is that some of us, like this lawyer, we really need to be hit over the head with this idea that, uh, that we're the guy on the side of the road. That needs to be the thing that strikes us most firmly and kind of shakes us, shakes us out of our stupor. Others of us don't have a hard time feeling that way. And I know there's some of you that would say, you know what, most of my life is actually spent with me feeling like I'm laying on the side of the road, broken bleeding. Maybe because that kind of thing has actually happened to you. Maybe you have experienced the abuse of a parent or a spouse or a friend. Maybe you have experienced the abandonment of somebody that you love. Maybe you have been wounded in such a way that your life just kind of feels like this man here. What do we do during those times? Well, if you're, again, anything like me, my first response is, I just want the pain to stop. When I'm in pain, when I'm feeling broken, when I am feeling beaten down, I just want something to distract me from it. Now, maybe what you look for is this kind of thing that this lawyer was looking for, right? We can turn easily to moralism. Give me a checkbox. Give me a list of things to do to make me feel like I'm okay and I'll do those things and then I won't have to worry about my brokenness because I'll just pay attention to how shiny and perfect I am. Or maybe you just anesthetize yourself to the pain with different kinds of things. Substances like alcohol or with food or with prescription drugs or with pornography or shopping or codependency. 
ways that we feel like we can make ourselves cope with the brokenness of our own hearts and the hearts of the lives around us. I, I was noticing my, my dog um, these days, I think especially kind of as spring comes on, it gets even worse, is that he will actually sit on the couch and look outside in our window and he'll see a squirrel. And a squirrel can be like in a tree at the back of the yard. And the dog will jump off the couch inside my house, jump off the couch, run through the living room, knocking things over on his way, run into the laundry room where his little dog door is and run himself into the wall, um, you know, trying to get there, run out the dog door, knock something over on the porch, all trying to get to the squirrel, right? Where the squirrel is like, really? You know, I mean, it's, it's, you're on the couch inside. And I look and thinking like, you know, you're not going to catch the squirrel. Like, give it up already. It's never going to happen. It takes you like three minutes to get outside and find the squirrel. It's not going to happen. And then I realized, isn't that what I do so often? Oh, look, something fun. Oh, look, something that will distract me. Oh, look, something that will make me feel better, you know, today. Something that will make me not realize that life kind of stinks right now. Something exciting that I get to chase after. Maybe I will get it and it will make me feel happy. But it never happens. It never really fulfills, does it? It never really gives us what we need. What do we need to know when we're feeling like this man on the road? It's this. The good Samaritan is coming. He is. Jesus is coming. He has promised it. He has come to tell us that he will always be with us. He has come to lay his life down for ours, to tell us that we will one day be with him. And as we celebrate Lent, even for the next few weeks, we're giving ourselves a little more permission to see ourselves in that time, to be able to, to, to know like, hey, this is hard. Life is terrible right now. But friends, we are marching toward Easter. We are looking at the beautiful truth that Jesus is coming. Let that be your hope this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Let that be your hope this morning as you look not to your own efforts, but to what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what he will do in us. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we are thankful for the beauty of this story and for the beauty of what it means for us. For you, Lord, have been our true neighbor. You have drawn yourself near to us. You have moved toward us in compassion. Lord, when everything about us actually should push you away, you have moved toward us. Father, will you show us that more deeply today so that we might be changed by it and so that we might then desire to be like the good Samaritan Savior who has come to us, that we might pour ourselves out for others that we might move toward the people around us in love and mercy and compassion and gentleness and kindness. Lord, use us even in that way to be a part of your mission in this world, to proclaim your goodness in all that we do. Thank you, Jesus, for drawing near to us. Show us how to draw near to others. We pray in your name. We'll spend just a few moments now responding to God's word as we take up our time.